0: This week's Drabblecast was brought to you by J.R. Hammentation's short story anthology, You Know It's True, 12 Stories of Truly Dark Fiction. Call 911. That's what he needed to do, call 911 and just tell them something terrible had happened. Professionals will come and see I had nothing to do with this, nothing to do, couldn't possibly have. And he despised himself for succumbing to thoughts of self-preservation, but what else could he do? That was a life raft he understood, and Emily... Downstairs, that hothouse dankness the sticky presence in the air, the three irregularly pyramidical puce-colored heaps of crumbling, powdery flesh, the hardened fragments of what could be bone jutting out like moray eels from coral. From the story, it's always time to go. This is a must-have for horror fans, folks, especially those that feel like they've seen it all at this point. Rock-solid short stories that you never see coming and that always pack a punch when they arrive. Snag a copy, Kindle, or paperback off Amazon.com. You Know It's True by J.R. Hammontation. Ain't no cookies up in this bee. Welcome to The Travelcast, episode 450. The Travelcast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Real treat for you folks this week, a story by one of my favorite authors and also one of the best short story writers in the 20th century, Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor's work, usually set in the rural American South, often concerns the relationship between individuals and God. She grew up in a prominent Roman Catholic family in Savannah, Georgia, until the worsening of her father's lupus forced her family to relocate in 1938 to a rural home in Milledgeville, where her mother had been raised and where she herself would later attend college at Georgia College and State University, where I also happened to teach guitar well over a half-century later. Anyways, our story this week, A Good Man is Hard to Find, well, it's, it's a classic You've either read it before at some point, and it therefore needs no introduction, or you haven't, in which case, the less introduction, the better as well. It's about a family summer road trip, a vacation, maybe like one you happen to be going on at this very moment. I hope so. That'd be fun. You know, because of all the fun, innocent times quarreling in the car with family members, the irritating dad by having to stop and pee, just so relatable. Anyways, I've always wanted to read this one. Flannery O'Connor is one of my favorite short story writers, and this one's one of my favorite stories by her. And I live, like, right where this goes down. It almost feels autobiographical. But also, just quick content advisory. The story is being presented as originally created, and contains an instance of outdated cultural language that was wrong then and is wrong now. Look, this situation comes up with H.P. Lovecraft, Mark Twain, a lot of writers whose work I enjoy a lot. I don't enjoy this part of them or their work. I don't enjoy that part of our history, but it happened. and I don't want to pretend that it didn't. I don't want to make excuses for it. I want to acknowledge it. On with it then, without further ado, we bring you A Good Man Is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor. There's a village hidden deep in the valley Among the pine trees half forlorn And there on a sunny morning Little Jimmy Brown was born All the chapel bells were ringing The grandmother didn't want to go to Florida. She wanted to visit some of her connections in East Tennessee, and she was seizing at every chance to change Bailey's mind. Bailey was the son she lived with, her only boy. He was sitting on the edge of his chair at the table, bent over the sports section of the journal. Now look here, Bailey, she said. See here, read this, and she stood with one hand on her thin hip and the other rattling the newspaper at his bald head. Here, this fellow that calls himself the misfit is a loose from the federal pen and headed toward Florida, and you read here what it says he did to those people. Just you read it. I wouldn't take my children in any direction with a criminal like that a loose. I couldn't answer to my conscience if I did. Bailey didn't look up from his reading, so she wheeled around then and faced the children's mother, a young woman in slacks, whose face was as broad and innocent as a cabbage and was tied around with a green headkerchief that had two points on the top, like rabbit's ears. She was sitting on the sofa, feeding the baby his apricots out of a jar. The children have been to Florida before, The old lady said, you all ought to take them somewhere else for a change. They ought to see different parts of the world. They never have been to East Tennessee. The children's mother didn't seem to hear her, but the eight-year-old boy, John Wesley, a stocky child with glasses said, if you don't want to go to Florida, why don't you stay at home? He and the little girl, June Star, were reading the funny papers on the floor. She wouldn't stay at home to be queen for a day, June Star said without raising her yellow head. "'Oh yes, and what would you do if this fella, the Misfit, caught you?' the grandmother asked. "'I'd smack him in the face,' John Wesley said. "'She wouldn't stay at home for a million bucks,' June Star said. "'Afraid she'd miss something. She has to go everywhere we go.' "'All right, miss,' the grandmother said. "'Just remember that next time you want me to curl your hair.' June Star said her hair was naturally curly. The next morning, the grandmother was the first one in the car, ready to go. She had her big black valise that looked like the head of a hippopotamus in one corner, and underneath it she was hiding a basket with Pity Sing, the cat, in it. She didn't intend for the cat to be left alone in the house for three days, because he would miss her too much, and she was afraid he might brush against one of the gas burners and accidentally asphyxiate himself. Her son, Bailey, didn't like to arrive at a motel with a cat. She sat in the middle of the back seat with John Wesley and June Star on either side. Bailey and the children's mother and the baby sat in front, and they left Atlanta at 8.45 with the mileage in the car at 55,890. The grandmother wrote this down because she thought it would be interesting to say how many miles they had gone when she got back. It took them 20 minutes to reach the outskirts of the city. The old lady settled herself comfortably, removing her white cotton gloves and putting them up with her purse on the shelf in the front of the back window. The children's mother still had on slacks and still had her head tied up in the green kerchief, but the grandmother had on a navy blue straw sailor hat with a bunch of white violets on the brim. Her collars and cuffs were white organdy trimmed with lace, and at her neckline she had pinned a purple spray of cloth violets containing a sachet. In case of an accident, anyone seeing her dead on the highway would know at once that she was a lady. She said she thought it was going to be a good day for driving, neither too hot nor too cold, and she cautioned Bailey that the speed limit was 55 miles an hour and that the patrolmen hid themselves behind billboards and small clumps of trees and sped out after you before you had a chance to slow down. She pointed out interesting details of the scenery, stone mountain, The blue granite that in some places came up to both sides of the highway, the brilliant red clay banks slightly streaked with purple, and the various crops that made rows of green lacework on the ground. The trees were full of silver-white sunlight, and the meanest of them sparkled. The children were reading comic magazines, and their mother had gone back to sleep. "'Let's go through Georgia fast so we don't have to look at it much,' John Wesley said. If I were a little boy, said the grandmother, I wouldn't talk about my native state that way. Tennessee has the mountains and Georgia has the hills. Tennessee is just a hillbilly dumping ground, John Wesley said, and Georgia's a lousy state too. You said it, June Star said. In my time, said the grandmother, folding her thin veined fingers, children were more respectful of their native states and their parents and everything else. People did right then, Oh, look at that cute little pickaninny," she said, pointing to a Negro child standing on the door of a shack. Wouldn't that make for a picture now, she asked, and they all turned to look at the little Negro out the back window. He waved. He don't have no britches on, June Star said. He probably didn't have to, Grandmother explained. In the country, they don't have to do things like we do. If I could paint, I'd paint that picture, she said. The children exchanged comic books. The grandmother offered to hold the baby, and the children's mother passed him over the front seat of the car. She set him on the knee and bounced him and told him about the things they were passing. She rolled her eyes and screwed up her mouth and stuck her leathery, thin face into the smooth, bland one. Occasionally, he gave her a faraway smile. They passed a large cotton field with five or six graves fenced in the middle of it like a small island. Look at that graveyard, the grandmother said, pointing it out. That was the old family burying ground. That belonged to the plantation. Where's the plantation? John Wesley asked. Gone with the wind, said the grandmother. <laughs> when the children finished all the comic books they brought, they opened the lunch and ate it. The grandmother ate a peanut butter sandwich and an olive and would not let the children throw the box and the paper napkins out the window when they were done and there was nothing else to do they played a game by choosing a cloud and making the other two guess what shape it suggested john wesley took one the shape of a cow and june star guessed a cow and john wesley said no an automobile and june star said he didn't play fair and they began to slap each other over and over and over over grandmother the grandmother said she would tell them a story if they would stop and keep quiet when she told a story, she rolled her eyes, and waved her head, and was very dramatic. She once said that when she was a maiden lady, she had been courted by a Mr. Edgar Atkins tea garden from Jasper, Georgia. She said he was very good-looking, and a gentleman, and that he brought her a watermelon every Saturday afternoon with his initials cut in it, E-A-T. The story tickled John Wesley's funny bone, and he giggled and giggled, but June Starr didn't think it was any good. She said she wouldn't marry a man that just brought her a watermelon on Saturday. The grandmother said she would have done well to marry Mr. Teagarden because he was a gentleman and had bought Coca-Cola stock when it first came out and that he died only a few years ago, a very wealthy man. They stopped at the tower for barbecued sandwiches. The tower was a part stucco, part wood filling station and dance hall set in a clearing outside of Timothy. A fat man named Red Sammy Butts ran it, and there were signs stuck here and there on the building and for miles up and down the highway saying, try Red Sammy's famous barbecue. None like famous Red Sammy's, Red Sam the fat boy with the happy laugh. A veteran, Red Sammy. Your man. Just before the lamps were... Red Sammy was lying on the bare ground outside the tower with his head under a truck, while a gray monkey about a foot high, chained to a small chinaberry tree, chattered nearby. The monkey sprang back into the tree and got on the highest limb as soon as he saw the children jump out of the car and run towards him. Inside, the tower was a long, dark room with a counter at one end and tables at the other and dancing space in the middle they all sat down at a board table next to the Nickelodeon and Red Sam's wife, a tall, burnt brown woman with hair and eyes lighter than her skin. She came and took their order. The children's mother put a dime in the machine and played the Tennessee Waltz, and the grandmother said the tune always made her want to dance. She asked Bailey if he would like to dance, but he only glared at her. He didn't have a naturally sunny disposition like she did, and trips made him nervous. The grandmother's brown eyes were very bright. She swayed her head from side to side, pretending she was dancing in her chair. June Star said, play something she could tap to, and so the children's mother put in another dime and played a fast number, and June Star stepped out onto the dance floor and did her tap routine. Ain't she cute, Red Sam's wife said leaning over the counter. Would you like to come and be my little girl? No, I wouldn't, June Star said. I wouldn't live in a broken-down place like this for a million bucks. She ran back to the table. Ain't she cute, the woman repeated, stretching her mouth politely. Aren't you ashamed, hissed the grandmother. He plays a the buggy in the low-down way. Red Sam came in and told his wife to quit lounging on the counter and hurry up with these people's order. His khaki trousers reached up just to his hip bones, and his stomach hung over them like a sack of meal swaying under his shirt. He came over and sat down at a table nearby and let out a combination sigh and yodel. You can't win, he said. I mean, you just can't win and he wiped his sweating red face off with a gray handkerchief. These days you don't know who to trust, he said. Ain't that the truth? Well, people are certainly not nice like they used to be, said the grandmother. Yeah, two fellas came in here last week, Red Sammy said, driving a Chrysler. It was an old beat-up car, but it was a good one, and these boys looked all right to me. Said they worked at the mill, and you know I let them fellas charge the gas they bought? (laughs) Now why would I go and do that? Well, because you're a good man, the grandmother said at once. (laughs) Yes, I suppose so, Red Sam said, as if he were struck with this answer. His wife brought the orders, carrying the five plates all at once without a tray, two in each hand and one balanced on her arm. It ain't a soul in this green world of gods that you can trust, she said, and I don't count nobody out of that, not nobody, she repeated, looking at Red Sammy. Oh, well, did you read about that criminal, the misfit that's escaped? Asked the grandmother. Mm, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't attract this place right here, said the woman. If he hears about it being here, I wouldn't be none surprised to see him. If he hears it's two cents in the cash register, I wouldn't I wouldn't be tall surprised if it. That'll do, Red Sam said. Why don't you go bring these people their Coca-Colas? And the woman went off to get the rest of the order. Yeah, a good man is hard to find, Red Sammy said. I mean, everything's getting terrible. I remember the day you could go off and leave your screen door unlatched. Not no more. He and grandmother discussed better times. The old lady said that in her opinion, Europe was entirely to blame for the way things are now. She said the way Europe acted, you, you would think we were made of money. And Red Sam said it was no use talking about, she was exactly right. The children ran outside into the white sunlight and looked at the monkey in the lacy chinaberry tree. He was busy catching fleas on himself and biting each one carefully between his teeth, as if it were a delicacy. Eventually, they drove off again into the hot afternoon. The grandmother took catnaps and woke up every few minutes with her own snoring. Outside of Tombsboro, she woke up and recalled an old plantation that she'd visited once in this neighborhood when she was a young lady. She said the house had six white columns across the front, and that there were an avenue of oaks leading up to it, and two little wooden trellis arbors on either side in front, where you sat down with your suitor after a stroll in the garden. She recalled exactly which road to turn off to get to it. She knew that Bailey would not be willing to lose any time looking at an old house, but the more she talked about it, the more she wanted to see it once again and find out if the little twin arbors were still standing there was a secret panel in this house she said craftily not telling the truth but wishing that she were and the story went that all the family silver was hidden in it when sherman came through but it was never found hey john wesley said let's go see it we'll find it we'll poke all the woodwork and we'll find it who lives there now where do you turn off at hey pop pop can we turn off there Why, we've never seen a house with a secret panel, June Star shrieked. Uh, Let's go see the house, Pop. Can't we go see the house with a secret panel? I mean, it's not far from here, I know, the grandmother said. It wouldn't take over 20 minutes. Bailey was looking straight ahead. His jaw was as rigid as a horseshoe. No, he said. The children began to yell and scream that they wanted to see the house, the house with the secret panel. John Wesley kicked the back of the front seat and June Star hung over her mother's shoulder and whined desperately into her ear. They'd never had any fun on any of their vacations. They could never do what they wanted to do. The baby began to scream and John Wesley kicked the back of the seat so hard that his father could feel the blows in his kidney. All right, he shouted and drew the car to a stop at the side of the road. Will you all shut up? We all shut up for a second? If you don't shut up, we won't go anywhere. It would be very educational for them, the grandmother murmured. All right, Bailey said, but get this, this is the only time we're going to stop for anything like this. This is the one and only time. Of course, the dirt road that you have to turn down is about a mile back, the grandmother directed. I marked it when we passed. Oh, a dirt road, Bailey groaned. After they turned around and were headed toward the dirt road, the grandmother recalled other points about the house. The beautiful glass over the front doorway, the candle lamp in the hall. John Wesley said the secret panel was probably in the fireplace. "'You can't go inside this house,' Bailey said. "'You don't know who lives there.' "'While you all talk to people up front, I'm going to run around behind back and get in the window,' John Wesley suggested. "'We'll all stay in the car,' his mother said." They turned onto the dirt road, and the car raced roughly along in a swirl of pink dust. The grandmother recalled the times when there were no paved roads, and 30 miles was a day's journey. The dirt road was hilly, and there were sudden washes in it and sharp curves on dangerous embankments. All at once, they would be on a hill looking down over the blue tops of trees for miles around, then the next minute they would be in a red depression with dust-coated trees looking down on them. This place had better turn up in a minute, Bailey said, or I'm going to turn this thing around. The road looked as if no one had traveled it in months. Oh, it's not that much farther, the grandmother said, and just as she said it, a horrible thought came to her. The thought was so embarrassing that she turned red in the face and her eyes dilated and her feet jumped up, upsetting her valise in the corner. The instant the valise moved, the newspaper top she had over the basket under it rose, and with a snarl, pity-sing the cat, sprang onto Bailey's shoulder. The children were thrown to the floor, and their mother, clutching the baby, was thrown out of the door onto the ground. The old lady was thrown into the front seat. The car turned over once and landed right side up in the gulch off the side of the road. Bailey remained in the driver's seat with the cat gray-striped with a broad white face and an orange nose clinging to his neck like a caterpillar. As soon as the children saw they could move their arms and legs, they scrambled out of the car, shouting, We've had an accident! The grandmother was curled up under the dashboard, hoping she was injured so that Bailey's wrath would not come down on her all at once. The horrible thought she had before the accident was that the house she had remembered so vividly was not in Georgia in Tennessee. Bailey removed the cat from his neck with both hands and flung it out the window against the side of a tree. Then he got out of the car and started looking for the children's mother. She was sitting against the side of the red gutted ditch holding the screaming baby, but she only had a cut down her face and a broken shoulder. We've had an accident, the children screamed in a frenzy of delight. "'But nobody's killed,' June Star said with disappointment, as the grandmother limped out of the car, her hat still pinned to her head, but the broken front brim standing up at a jaunty angle and the violet spray hanging off to the side. They all sat down in the ditch, except the children, to recover from the shock. They were all shaking. "'Maybe a car will come along,' said the children's mother hoarsely. "'I do believe I've injured an organ said the grandmother, pressing her side, but no one answered. Bailey's teeth were chattering. He had a yellow sport shirt on with bright blue parrots designed into it, and his face was as yellow as the shirt. The grandmother decided that she would not mention that the house was in Tennessee after all. The road was about 10 feet above, and they could see only the tops of the trees on the other side of it. Behind the ditch they were sitting in, there were more woods, tall and dark and deep. In a few minutes, they saw a car some distance away on top of a hill, coming slowly as if the occupants were watching them. The grandmother stood up and waved both arms dramatically to attract their attention. The car continued to come slowly, disappeared around a bend, and appeared again, moving even slower on top of the hill they'd gone over. It was a big, black, battered, hearse-like automobile. There were three men in it. It came to a stop just over them, and for some minutes, the driver looked down with a steady, expressionless gaze to where they were sitting, and didn't speak. Then he turned his head and muttered something to the other two, and they got out. One was a fat boy in black trousers and a red sweatshirt with a silver stallion embossed on the front of it. He moved around on the right side of them and stood staring, his mouth partly open in a kind of loose grin. The other had on khaki pants, and a blue striped coat, and a grey hat pulled down very low, hiding most of his face. He came around on the left side. Neither spoke. The driver got out of the car and stood by the side of it, looking down at them. He was an older man than the other two. His hair was just beginning to grey, and he wore silver-rimmed spectacles that gave him a scholarly look. He had a long, creased face, and didn't have on any shirt or undershirt. He had on blue jeans that were too tight, and was holding a black hat and a gun. The two boys also had guns.
1: "'We've
0: had an accident!' the children screamed. The grandmother had the peculiar feeling that the bespectacled man was someone she knew. His face was as familiar to her as if she'd known him her whole life, but she could not recall who he was. He moved away from the car and began to come down the embankment, placing his feet carefully so he wouldn't slip. He had on tan and white shoes and no socks, and his ankles were red and thin. Good afternoon, he said. I see you all had a little spill. We turned over twice, the grandmother said. Once, he corrected. We seen it happen. Try their car, Hiram. See if it'll run he said quietly to the boy with the gray hat. What you got the gun for? John Wesley asked. What you gonna do with that gun? Lady, the man said to the child's mother. Would you uh mind calling them children to sit down by you? Children, make me nervous. I want all you to sit down right together where you're at. Why you telling us what to do for? June Star asked. Behind them, the line of woods gaped like a dark, open mouth. "'Come here,' said their mother. "'Look here now,' Bailey began suddenly. "'We're in a predicament. We're we're in—' The grandmother shrieked. She scrambled to her feet and stood staring. "'You're—you're you're the misfit,' she said. "'I recognized you at once.' "'Yes,' um, the man said, smiling slightly as if he were pleased in spite of himself to be known. "'But it would have been better for you, all, lady.' if you hadn't recognized me. Bailey turned his head sharply and said something to his mother that shocked even the children. The old lady began to cry and the misfit reddened. Lady, he said, now don't you get upset. Sometimes a man says things he don't mean. I don't reckon he meant to talk to you that way. You wouldn't shoot a lady, the grandmother said and removed a clean handkerchief from her cuff, began to slap at her eyes with it. The misfit pointed the toe of his shoe into the ground and made a little hole and covered it up again. I would hate to have to, he said. Listen, the grandmother almost screamed. I know you're a good man. You don't look a bit like you have common blood. I know you must come from nice people. (laughs) Yes, ma'am, he said. Finest people in the world. When he smiled, he showed a row of strong white teeth. You know, God never made a finer woman than my mother, and my daddy's heart was pure gold. The boy with the red sweatshirt came around behind them and was standing with his gun at his hip. The misfit squatted down on the ground. Watch them children, Bobby Lee. You know they make me nervous. He looked at the six of them huddled together in front of him and seemed to be embarrassed as if he couldn't think of anything to say. Ain't a cloud in the sky he remarked, looking up at it. "'Don't see no sun. "'Don't see no cloud, neither.' "'Yes, it's a beautiful day,' said the grandmother. "'Listen, you shouldn't call yourself the misfit, "'cause I I know you're a good man at heart. "'I can just look at you and tell.' "'Hush,' Bailey yelled. "'Hush, everybody just shut up and let me handle this.' "'He was squatting in the position of a runner "'about to sprint forward, but he didn't move. "'You know, I appreciate that, lady.' the misfit said, and drew a little circle in the ground with the butt of his gun. "'It'll take us half-hour to fix this here car,' Hiram called, looking over the raised hood of it. All right. well, first you and Bobby Lee get him and a little boy to step over yonder with you,' the misfit said, pointing to Bailey and John Wesley. The boys want to ask you something,' he said to Bailey. "'You mind stepping back in them woods?' Listen, Bailey began. We're we're in a terrible predicament. Nobody realizes what this is. And his voice cracked. His eyes were as blue and intense as the parrots on his shirt, and he remained perfectly still. The grandmother reached up to adjust her hat brim as if she were going to the woods with him, but it came off in her hand. She stood staring at it, and after a second she let it fall to the ground. Hiram pulled Bailey up by the arm as if he were assisting an old man. John Wesley caught hold of his father's hand, and Bobby Lee followed. They went off towards the woods, and just as they reached the dark edge, Bailey turned, and supporting himself against a gray, naked pine trunk, he shouted. "'I'll be back in a minute. Wait on me. Come back this instant!' The mother shrilled, but they all disappeared into the woods. "'Bailey boy!' the grandmother called in a tragic voice, but she found she was looking at the misfit squatting on the ground in front of her. I just know you're a good man, she said desperately. You're not a bit common. No, ma'am, I ain't a good man, the misfit said after a second, as if he'd considered her statement carefully. But I ain't the worst in the world neither. My daddy said I was a, a different breed of dog than my brothers and sisters. (laughs) He said, it's something I can live the whole life without asking about it. And that's others has to know why it is. And this boy right here, he's one of the ladders. He gonna be into everything. He put on his black hat and looked up suddenly and then away deep into the woods as if he were embarrassed again. "Yeah, Yeah, I'm sorry I don't have a shirt on before you ladies he said, hunching his shoulders slightly. You know, we buried our clothes that we had on when we escaped, and we just making do until we get better. We borrowed these here off some folks we met." "'Oh, that's perfectly alright,' the grandmother said. "'Maybe Bailey has an extra shirt in a suitcase.' "'Yeah, yeah, I'll look and see directly,' the misfit said. "'Where are you taking them?' the children's mother screamed. "'You know, Daddy was a card himself,' the misfit said. You couldn't put anything over on him. Never got in trouble with the authorities, though. Just had that knack of handling them. You, you could be honest, too, if you'd only try, said the grandmother. Oh, think of how wonderful it would be to settle down and live a comfortable life and not have to think about somebody chasing you all the time. The misfit kept scratching in the ground with the butt of his gun, as if he were thinking about it. Yes, he muttered. Somebody's always after you. The grandmother noticed how thin his shoulder blades were just behind his hat because she was standing up looking down on him. Do you, do you ever pray? She asked. He shook his head. All she saw was the black hat wiggle between his shoulder blades. No, ma'am. There was a pistol shot from the woods. Followed closely by another. Then silence. The old lady's head jerked around. She could hear the wind move through the treetops like a long satisfied insuck of breath. Paley boy. You know I was a gospel singer for a while, the Misfit said. Yeah, I've been most everything. Been in the armed service, both land and sea, home and abroad. Been twice married, been an undertaker been with the railroads and plowed Mother Earth, been in a tornado, seen a man burnt alive once, and he looked up at the children's mother and the little girl who were sitting close together, their faces white and their eyes glassy. I even seen a woman flogged. Pray, pray, the grandmother began. Pray, pray, I never was a bad boy that I remembered of, the misfit said in an almost dreamy voice. But somewhere along the line, i well, done something wrong, I got sent to the penitentiary. I was buried, buried alive. And he looked up, and he held her attention to him by a steady stare. Well, that's when you should have started to pray, she said. What did you do to get sent to the penitentiary that turned to the right and it was a wall, the misfit said. Looking up again at the cloudless sky, turned to the left and it was a wall. Look up at the ceiling and look down at the floor, And you know, I forget, I forget what I done, lady. I sit there and I, I sit there trying to remember what it was I done. And I ain't recalled it, not this day. Once in a while, I'd think it was coming to me, but it's never come. Well, maybe they put you in by mistake, the old lady said vaguely. No, no, ma'am. Wasn't no mistake. They had papers on me. Y- you must have stolen something, she said. The misfit sneered slightly. Nobody ever had nothing I wanted. As a head doctor at the penitentiary, said what I'd done was kill my daddy. But I know that was a lie. My daddy died in 19, not 19, and the epidemic flew, and I, I never had a thing to do with it. He was buried in Mount Hopewell Baptist Churchyard. and You can go there and see for yourself. If you would only pray, the old lady said, Jesus would help you. Oh, that's right, the misfit said. Well, then why don't you pray? She asked, trembling with delight suddenly. Oh, I don't want no help, he said. I'm doing all right by myself. Bobby Lee and Hiram came ambling back from the woods. Bobby Lee was dragging a yellow shirt with bright blue parrots in it. Throw me that shirt there, Bobby Lee, the misfit said. The shirt came flying at him and landed on his shoulder, and he put it on. The grandmother couldn't name what the shirt reminded her of. Nah, lady, the misfit said while he was buttoning up. I found out that crime don't matter. You can do one thing, you can do another. You kill a man or take a tire off his car because sooner or later you're gonna forget what it was you done. And you're just gonna be punished for it. The children's mother had begun to make heaving noises as if she couldn't get her breath. Lady, he asked, would you and that little girl there step off yonder with Bobby Lee and Hiram? Join your husband? Yes? thank you the mother said faintly her left arm dangled helplessly and she was holding the baby who had gone to sleep in the other help that lady hiram the misfit said as she struggled to climb out of the ditch and bobby lee you you hold that little girl's hand i don't want to hold hands with him june star said he reminds me of a pig the fat boy blushed and laughed and caught her by the arm and pulled her off into the woods after hiram and her mother Alone with the misfit, the grandmother found that she'd lost her voice. There was not a cloud in the sky nor any sun. There was nothing around her but woods. She wanted to tell him that he must pray. She opened and closed her mouth several times before anything came out. Finally, she found herself saying, Jesus, Jesus. Meaning Jesus will help you, but the way she was saying it... it, it sounded as if she might be cursing. Yes, ma'am, the misfit said, as if he agreed. Jesus shown everything off balance. It was the same case with him as with me, except he hadn't committed any crime and they could prove I had cause they had the papers on me. Of course, but they'd never shown me my papers. That's why I signed myself now. I said long ago, you get you a signature, and you sign everything you do, and you keep a copy of it, and then you know what you've done, and you, you can hold up the crown to the punishment, and you can see they match, and in the end, you've got something to prove you ain't been treated right. You know, I call myself the misfit, because I can't make all what i done wrong fit with what i gone through in punishment. There was a piercing scream from the woods, followed closely by a pistol report. Does it seem right to you, lady? That one could be punished, a whole heap. and another ain't punished at all. Jesus, the old lady cried. You've got blood. I know you wouldn't shoot a lady. I know you come from nice... Pra- Jesus, you ought not shoot a lady. I'll give you all the money I got. Lady, the misfit said, looking beyond her far into the woods. There never was a body that gave the undertaker a tip. There were two more pistol reports, and the grandmother raised her head like a parched old turkey hen crying for water, calling, Bailey boy, Bailey boy, as if her heart would break. You know, Jesus was the only one who ever raised the dead. The misfit continued, and he shouldn't have done it. He's shown everything off balance. If he did what he said, it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him, and if he didn't, then well, it's nothing for you to do but, but enjoy the few minutes you got left, best way you can. By killing someone, burning down his house, or doing some other meanness. No pleasure but meanness. He said, and his voice had become almost a snarl. Maybe he didn't raise the dead. The old lady mumbled, not knowing what she was saying and feeling so dizzy that she sank down in the ditch with her legs twisted under. Well, I would not there, so I couldn't say he didn't, the misfit said. I mean, I wish I'd been there, he said, hitting the ground with his fist. It ain't right, I wouldn't, because if I'd been there, I would've known. I would've known. And I wouldn't be like I am now. His voice seemed about to crack, and the grandmother's head cleared for just an instant. She saw the man's face twisted close to her own, as if he were going to cry, and she murmured, "Why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my babies.' She reached out. She touched him on the shoulder. The misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times through the chest." Then he put his gun down on the ground and took off his glasses and began to clean them. Hiram and Bobby Lee returned from the woods and stood over the ditch, looking down at the grandmother who sat halfway in a puddle of blood, with her legs crossed under like a child's. Her face was smiling up at the cloudless sky. Without his glasses, the misfit's eyes were red-rimmed and pale, defenseless-looking. Take her off. Throw her where you've shown the others, he said, picking up the cat that was rubbing against his leg. She was a talker, wasn't she? Bobby Lee said, sliding down the ditch with a yodel. She would have been a good woman, the misfit said, if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. It's some fun, Bobby Lee said. Shut up, Bobby Lee. There's no real pleasure in life. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Hoo boy, starts out a socky story and takes a sharp left turn into downtown Cormit McCarthyville. You really only ever get to experience the slow but steadily mounting sense of disbelief you acquire in that story's second half, once. That well, this is getting dark, wow, where exactly is this going? <laughs> There's no way that, no, this isn't that kind of story, this isn't, no way, feeling. Hope you enjoyed. And see, that's the thing. Just like the grandmother in the story, we make the mistake of thinking that the moral quality of a person, or a thing, or a story, is self-evident. I mean, it's wearing a pinned purple spray of cloth violets containing a sachet. That's how you can tell a corpse is a lady. I know you must be a good person. I'm making an unreflective assertion, aren't I? A good man is hard to find unless you really want to find one, and then they're everywhere you need them to be, right there in the mirror looking back at you if you need, if you're a real whiz at rationalizing bad behavior. Enter the famous criminal who can't remember his own original crime, who doesn't care what society labels him, he labels himself, signs his own signature. Enter cold, unflinching, horrifying integrity. When talking about this story, O'Connor referred to the misfit as a profit freak, Those prophet freaks, she wrote, seem to carry an invisible burden and to fix us with eyes that remind us that we all bear some heavy responsibility whose nature we have forgotten. They see what we do not. They are prophetic figures, the result of outrage and not of geniality. It is a fallen world. Old Red Sammy was right about that. But if you asked O'Connor, she would argue perhaps that it would be wrong for he and Granny and any of us really to think we're exceptions. If anything, we're typical, emblematic of a social mentality that accepts lip service as a replacement for values. Speech, posturing, superficial labeling and judgments as a replacement for action. For the grandmother, as with all of us really, a good man is one whose values are aligned with our own. Red Sammy is good because he trusts people blindly and waxes nostalgic about more innocent times. The Misfit is good because he won't shoot a lady, right? An assumption, of course, which proves to be her undoing. A good man may be hard to find, but only because self-reflection is a heavy responsibility for a profit freak to bear. All right, let's close things out now with our 100-character story winner this week by Swami Nona. Here it is. I stare at the "Please help" subject line. Did I create a monster? Cautiously, I open the email from my pseudonym. One hundred character stories—we call them twabbles. We have a weekly contest in our discussion forums at forums.troublecast.org in the TwitFix section, where you can write one, and we might pick it as next week's winner. Post it out early on social media. Run it here on the show. Give it a shot. 100 characters, not counting spaces. Good times. As you know, folks, our program is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, On commercial no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes, tell a friend, spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Bo Kyer, Drabblecast art director, phenom, and ultimate weirdo. Check out his art at bokyre.com. That's our show this week, folks. Our program is brought to you by Abby Hilton, Bo Kyer, Tom Baker, Cameron Howard, Jason Smith, Jason Cavella, A Man, A Plan, a roving band of Famke Jansen fans, Maria Dong, Jen Fisher, Sandro Dell, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you there never was a body that gave The Undertaker a tip.